we also see that mainstreaming social impact has so far been, you know, more dilution or impact washing. So I guess a really quick big question that the sector needs to address is how can we scale while still keeping integrity? How can we achieve both breadth of impact but depth of impact as well? Um, and finally, I hope to see more challenge really to come into this sector. Um, I am quite hopeful on that front because I feel um, the, for example, the interns at our consultancy now or at Lensational, much younger, of course, that they're still finishing her uh, their degrees, but they already have uh, a lot of thinking around systems change, and they see that the ways we've done things traditionally, we can't continue as business as usual. That I see a lot more um, enthusiasm and even kind of more. Um, pushing uh, the sector to do more uh, from those talents. Hello and welcome. I'm Shiza Shah, your host of Reinvision Business and co-founder of UpEffect, a crowdfunding platform resourcing organizations shaping a benevolent economy inspired by justice and ethics. If you're new to our work, over the last decade, our team has enjoyed spotlighting organizations at the forefront of advancing financial equity, conservation, and economic empowerment. We're now deepening this work through our Reinvision Business podcast to dive deeper into what models are working and shaping the next economy. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll amplify models that are re-envisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In this episode, I'm joined by a dear friend, Bonnie Chu. Bonnie brings a wealth of expertise in impact investing, impact measurement, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. In her current role as Managing Director of the Social Investment Consultancy, she has supported over 150 clients and expanded the consultancy's team globally to Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and the Caribbean. As a serial social entrepreneur, she co-founded an award-winning social enterprise, Lensational focused on empowering women through storytelling, which she has scaled to 23 countries as well as the Diversity Forum for Inclusive Social Investment and other initiatives. She is a member of the Flexible Finance Committee of the Access Foundation for Social Investment, a member of the Expert Review Committee of the World Benchmarking Alliance's Gender Benchmark, and sits on several boards, including 360 Giving, which advocates for open data and philanthropy. She also serves as a Forbes senior contributing writer on gender and diversity. She has received multiple accolades for her work named Asia 21 Young Leader by Asia Society, a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur and Young Achiever of the Asian Women of Achievement Awards and has been invited to speak in over 20 countries and in two TEDx talks. In today's conversation, we unpack the world of social impact and investing and what it will take to do impactful work correctly. Hi, Bonnie. So wonderful to have you in Reinvision Business. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, um, just for a bit of context for everyone else, um, Bonnie's nonprofit Lensational um, and the first iteration of Up Effect, formerly known as Helping Bee, launched around the same time. And Lensational was the very, very first campaign on our platform. Uh, Bonnie, it's been just truly incredible to watch your journey and see you turn Lensational into an award-winning enterprise which equips marginalized women with photography training and digital skills. Um, since launching in 2013, the organization has expanded to a team of 120 volunteers, has taught photography to a thousand women across 23 countries and established partnerships with corporates such as Getty Images, Standard Chartered Bank and Colgate. I'm so grateful to have you here today and discuss the incredible work that you're now engaged in and all of the different projects that you've um, uh, initiated or are currently um, stewarding. So Bonnie, you're internationally recognized as a champion for global development and gender equality. How did you find yourself starting a number of socially responsible initiatives centered on these areas and now leading one of the most reputable consultancies in the social enterprise sector. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. And um, I'm yeah very humbled about what you said about um, yeah my that I'm internationally recognized. I think I just try to always uh, do the right thing. And I think there's a lot of restlessness in me to always try to solve the social problems that I see around me. And I've just been very grateful how life has led me and um, mm -hmm. and how I've been given this global platform to be um, kind of amplifying uh, the causes that I'm passionate about. But but yeah, with, with that caveat, um, I really started out in uh, social entrepreneurship uh, actually when I was doing um, my undergraduate degree uh, in business and uh, in business studies, we talk a lot about, well, of course, uh, profits and uh, marketing and all those things that we know that a business uh, kind of does and creates. Uh, but as part of that journey, uh, I stumbled upon this concept of social enterprise um, and I found it as a very uh, innovative concept that I really want to uh, dig deeper into because I love um, when I was working uh, in different businesses and studying business, I was really um, interested in the dynamism of business, how quickly you can create change, but emerging that with uh, the ability mm -hmm. to solve a lot of the social problems that we have around us. And one particular social problem that I'm very passionate about uh, was gender inequality. So that kind of got me into starting uh, Lensational, which you have described uh, in, back in 2013. And yes, it's almost 10 years ago uh, that I've kind of embarked on this journey of being uh, a social entrepreneur. Um, and since starting Lensational, I think I uh, was very fortunate to come across Up Effect, uh, and, you know, back then helping be because uh, we were very aligned in our, um, in our values. And that's very different from the experiences I have uh gathered while I was trying to fundraise uh, from other organizations. Um, and you were obviously addressing a gap in the market. Um, and in my experience of starting Lensational, I just saw so many issues with funding and the fundraising world. And I felt I didn't want to keep 
harassing people to fundraise and like it, it felt to me so lopsided that people mm-hmm. with uh, the resources actually are so far away from the change that they want to create and then you have all these entrepreneurs with bright ideas who are not getting supported and and mm-hmm. compounding that you know of me as a woman of color and also I moved to the UK in late 2013 so that's also the immigrant challenge mm-hmm. um that with all these experiences I just felt it might be good for me to think of how I can influence decision makers directly so that got me into the consulting world so in 2014 I joined the social investment consultancy which is a a boutique social impact uh, consulting firm and I have been doing that alongside Lensational while I was getting Lensational going Um, and the original plan um, for my career um, when I joined the consultancy was that I would gain some years of experience save some money so that I can uh, work on Lensational full-time in a few years Um, But once I joined the consultancy, I was just so excited by the ability to really create change on that systems level and to uh, create change across multiple social issues. While I was passionate about gender, I was also passionate about many other issues. So being a a consultant allowed me to have that broader impact. Um, And so when the opportunity did come where Lensational raised enough funding uh, to hire full-time staff, I actually decided not to uh, become full-time. And I think around that time was around 2016, so three years after starting Lensational. And I also came to a realization about kind of the role of founders um, and some founder syndrome that actually a lot of times, a lot of social enterprises, their full potential might sometimes be obstructed by the founders and the people who are starting businesses might not necessarily be the best ones to continue operating and scaling the businesses. So there was a bit of realization around that. Uh, and there was also realization because Lensational at that time was already operating across 23 countries, uh, a lot of times in Asia and Africa, to countries in countries that I've never even visited. Um, And I felt increasingly that I'm very far removed from the impact that I was seeking to create and that I truly believe in lived experience leadership. I truly believe in proximity that um, people should have to the impact that they're creating. And I just felt I wasn't able to do that. So it was very intentional for me to uh, create a plan that I could be obsolete uh, as a founder from Lensational. And that uh, incre- like over time, I was uh, putting more efforts uh, in the consultancy uh, so that I can really create work, uh, create impact on that uh, systems level. Yeah, amazing. And it's interesting how we've gone through a very similar journey because we also then developed a consultancy at Up Effect um, because we experienced the same challenges in the sector that if we were to... Um, see changes on a systemic level then we need to needed to work directly with the larger organizations and the bigger actors in the space um and help them change their mindset and how they were showing up in the ecosystem and and there really is a big need for the work that you're doing and the work that you know the social enterprise sector is currently now moving towards because um that's that where you mentioned that you know that cycle of what a founder goes through as well 
um, you know, it's it's not necessary that the founder continues running the organization or operationalizing it in the way that it had originally um, uh, conceived as the original vision of the organization. There might be some better um, individuals that might be better equipped for that. Um, and so um, that is a journey that we've seen many of our social enterprises that have worked with us take, um, as well as ourselves. Um, so it's just, yeah, interesting the similarities between our journeys. Um, and I, I've just loved seeing the work that you've gone on to do. Um, once you took on that role at the consultancy, what are some common themes that you've identified? Um, I think when I um, started out Lensational, um, it was very much that I didn't see people who were most affected by the problems, uh, social problems, and I don't see their voices on that global level in decision-making, in policy influencing um so this at the heart of lensational is very much like reclaiming the voice and uh, for people most affected to tell their own stories uh, and i've taken this ethos of equity and justice to the work that i'm doing in the consultancy uh, we now advise a lot of organizations around how they can improve their diversity equity and inclusion practices how can they truly embed justice in the way they work uh, whether it's grant making or impact assessment um, and um, investment raising, etc. Um, and the other kind of theme I would say is also kind of that global um, scale. Um, I remember when I was starting Lensational, that was the time when I heard of this idea of like born global enterprises. So organizations that are not necessarily rooted in, in one geography and that's enabled by technology. Um, and I think very much that global reach of Lensational that's been able to be accomplished in such a short time. I'm now trying to do that also with the consultancy. And a lot of our competitors, quote unquote, uh, you know, I say quote unquote because I do think we should, you know, have much more collaboration in the sector rather than seeing others as competitors. Definitely. But, you know, people who are doing similar consulting work as us, they often um, have uh, UK headquarters or US headquarters, and then they start offices in different countries that they send their own people to then start those offices. But mm -hmm. uh, very much as I see scaling through a more bottom-up approach. Uh, so we have a franchise model where uh, we have, um, people who are in the different geographies who are passionate and interested in what we're doing, we then train them to kind of start up their own consultancy and deliver work under our own brand. So uh, it's been really great to uh, kind of scale that. So we now have uh, offices, uh, you know, through this model in Hong Kong, of course, my hometown, but also in India and Africa, uh, out of our Ghana office. Um, and we're also, yeah, starting in the Middle East and uh, in the Caribbean region. So I think some themes of like kind of equity and justice, but also doing that on a global scale are some things that I've identified uh, on this journey. And it's always about how can we create social change, the most social impact we can within the shortest time? And also how can we not uh, fall into the traps of previous people who've gone before us and you know coming back to the theme of uh your podcast of re-envisioning business how can we really have a different kind of vision for the world that we want to live in and create 
That's incredible. I've not heard of that model in the consultancy world before. And, and it's interesting how you're recruiting local talent to actually work with the organizations that have a better understanding of the the local needs and challenges that these organizations are up against. How do you work with a client and help them understand impact from the lens that you're approaching it from? Because everyone defines social impact differently. And there is a very big spectrum as well in terms of how one would define diversity and inclusion. What justice means to one organization is not necessarily what justice means to another. So how do you um, help these organizations make better choices um, aligned to your own um, approach around impact yeah um uh, consultancy uh of course is very difficult to say you know we have this cookie cutter approach because every client is different and every organization is on a different path or different part of that spectrum you just articulated um but it, it really comes down to well first uh, understanding of impact um so what is the impact that they're trying to create? And we have a, uh, a few models that we often use that a lot of people also use, such as theory of change. Um, so just helping organizations outline what's their theory of change and then how can they measure some of the outcomes that they have aspirations to create. Um, and some of those uh, outcomes we advise on how they measure through looking at what other people are measuring and also what their uh, stakeholders ultimately think change looks like. Um, and the uh, kind of most incredible work that I've done, I feel, is I uh, worked in, uh, or one of the most incredible work I've done in this area is uh, working on a fund called East Africa Disability Fund. Um, so they support uh, livelihoods uh, improvement projects uh, for disabled people in two East African countries. Um, and rather than the funder saying, this is what impact looks like, they flip the paradigm uh, upside down or bottom up in that they wanted their beneficiaries and the communities actually define what impact looks like. So we had this actually one year of exploration uh, process where we heard from communities and we understood from them what impact looks like. And then we filtered those views into a impact measurement framework so that the funder can then use this to measure the impact of all of their grants and this way of doing things like bottom up is actually quite rare because most organizations come in and in they have a vision for the very specific outcomes that they want to create and funders sometimes are even like buying for outcomes right and that's actually what evolution we see in the impact investing world but um, I think we very much advocate for this user center approach so we help organizations yeah, measure impact but how do they do that we try to make them embed those ethos of equity and justice uh, through the way they measure impact um, and after you you know, designing the framework, we also support them with evaluating the impact and learning from it. And I know we'll talk about a case study later on of um, a project that we've recently worked on where the report was published. Um, and the uh, so impact measurement and learning is a big part of how we help organizations make better choices because ultimately they should be um, making choices on their funding, on their programming, on their investments through what is working well and crucially what not. 
And the other aspect is at advising them on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We do have uh, some definitions that we bring to our clients and we break down diversity, equity, and inclusion. People often conflate these three things. Uh, but diversity for us is very much who is involved and how can you diversify other people involved in your organization. But equity is a lot about the processes. So how can your processes like fundraising or investment processes, your assessment process, your recruitment process, how can those be equitable? And for us, equity is distinct from equality, that it is uh, tailored to the needs of different groups and that recognizing that not everyone starts from the same page or from the from the same starting point uh, and inclusion is much more about the culture the organizational culture so we bring those definitions to clients help them articulate what does that look like in their organization or in their team and then based on that usually there's an exploration process and then we're that would then be followed by action planning and implementation stage. And finally, we also work in impact investing. So we support a lot of organizations that are involved in impact investing. Uh, and I know we'll explore this a bit more, but a lot of times they are kind of impact washing. So we, we do a lot of training for investors on what good and transformative impact investing ultimately looks like. So really equipping them with the skills and frameworks so that hopefully they can make investment choices that are maximizing impact rather than profits. And that goes back to some of our values as an organization. So uh, the two values I just want to highlight is honesty and humility. So we really encourage our clients to be very honest and humble about the impact that we can create and that we can't. Uh, I think there's a lot of overclaiming of impact that we are very critical of. And the other value is uh, impact before profits. I mean, there is still a lot of uh, thinking that Profits and impacts are trade are trading off, and you know we take a more nuanced view that sometimes there are trade offs, but not always. But we take the view that always, if you um, have impact and profits uh, in tension with each other, you should opt for prof- uh, for impacts rather than profits. So that's kind of the ethos that we're trying to uh, bring to our clients, and that we are also trying to be more. Um, quote-unquote picky with our clients that we're working with people who have impact integrity rather than those who just want to tick the box. Yeah, and you just wonderfully touched on the the challenges of the impact investing space, but also, um, you know, some of the uh, frameworks that are needed to be embedded when we're approaching DEI um, work in this in this sector, because a lot of organizations are often conflating what the what the terms actually mean. So you're taking a very interesting approach, um, where it's a very bespoke model with each client and and helping them understand um, how do how do they adopt those different values within their own framework, and then how do they learn from that on a constant basis. Um, just coming back to the concept of impact investing and and the impact washing that is happening in the space, um, you know, we find that a lot of impact investors are often prioritizing profit over impact. Um, you and your co-author, uh, Lavanya um, Hinduja, noted in your AVPN article that the sector in India is becoming more mainstream as impact investors move to bigger ticket sizes and shorter exit horizons, but also shallower with no clear demarcation of impact versus non-impact. And this was based on the research that you did um, with a number of stakeholders in India. 
I'm curious, how prevalent is this in other regions and around the world, the concept of impact washing? And how um, how might we be able to tackle this um, with impact investors, but also um, from the other side, um, the entrepreneurs that are are experiencing the harms of this model? Yes, I think impact investing has got such a good brand uh, in that a lot of people want to get involved uh, because it sounds cool. And I also even find, you know, we are called the social investment consultancy and I often find people prefer the term impact investing over social investment. And I, I think there is this perhaps impact investing sounds cooler than social investment because social is like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of lesser and it, it's like charity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, impact investing has been able to overcome some of the uh, preconceived notions people have about kind of social impact to propel it more to the mainstream. But it's indeed a double-edged sword uh, because a lot of people are crowding in without wanting to change themselves. So they just want to rebrand the existing toxic uh, capitalism model that has caused climate change and inequalities and all the problems that we see in yep. the world just want yep. to rebrand is it as impact investing without changing anything mm -hmm. uh, and we see that so much in other regions you know beyond India so we were you know doing that research focus on India and you can say India has actually been a great success for impact investing because they have been able to move to bigger ticket sizes and shorter exit horizons because of their success, but impact washing is not unique to India, for sure. Um, I was uh, doing some training last year for investors uh, about the difference between ESG and impact investing, and we can have another episode just on that. But one of the things that we said in our training, that ESG is not enough, that you do need to think about impact, is quoting from um, Bloomberg, which has reported on how in the EU, um, European ESG assets are strength by $2 trillion after a change of greenwashing rules by the EU. So uh, that was just in 2021. So basically, the EU has changed some rules, so you need to be more robust in how you prove that you are quote-unquote green. Uh, and after that change, two trillion of assets are no longer considered green. So it's a lot of money. And you can just imagine that extent of uh, impact washing and greenwashing that's actually going on in Europe. Uh, in Africa, what I see in the conversations I'm having with people is that impact investing is almost just equating with creating employment and jobs. And because we're investing in quote-unquote poor countries, then that's fine. So people don't want to think much more beyond creating jobs and employment, which of course is a very valid concern, but we can't just take that for granted and we really need to have more impact integrity and rigor to really measure the impact of investments. Uh, Latin America, no less about, but um, I think on the Upside, uh, there are regional networks such as AVPN, uh, LAC Impact Show, AVPA, like EVPA, all those acronyms just really mean the kind of venture philanthropy or social investment associations for those regions that they are trying to steer the impact conversation. And the people within those uh, networks or people working in those networks, they are 
uh, from an impact background. So I think it's important to really have those networks to be steering the impact conversation and also for everyone working the impact sector to have more reflection and to be able to take a step back and really think about whether we are repeating the status quo. And I will just um, end on one quote that I heard. I had this, um, you know, Muhammad Yunus is a great inspiration, I think, for a lot of people in the social enterprise uh, impact investing sector. And I uh, was part of the One Young World Summit long time ago, uh, 2015-16, and had the honor to hear from him. Um, and also took a picture with him. Um, but he said something to young people specifically. He said, young people, don't repeat the mistakes of your previous generation. And don't think that you should walk the path that they have walked. Because if you walk the same path, then we'll just end up in the same des- we'll just end up at the same destination. And in a way, he's cautioning us not to walk the path that he even himself has walked. And I, I was I was so inspired by that. And I always take that uh, in everything I do that I ask myself, am I just walking the same path? And if, because if I am, then I will just go to the same destination. And we need a different destination for our planet, for our next generation. So um, I think I just always try to ask myself that question. And whenever I ask myself that question, then I realize, oh, there's some things I'm doing which might actually be impact washing that I just need to stop doing. And it's just a great reflection point that I hope more people, you know, going back to my values, right, honesty and humility, I'm hoping more people working in the impact sector would have more of that honesty and humility and reflect more on the direction of travel for all of us. Absolutely. And I think a lot of these terms have just become like you said, cool. So a lot of us latch on to them, um, even in our own enterprises, because it's easier to build an audience around them and to connect with a group of people and get them to understand your messaging. But it's uh, just to your points, um, I think it's crucial that we operate with integrity and honesty when we do this work, because it's very easy for you know you and I to also just fall into the traps of what our previous generation may have kind of also fallen into and have led a lot of these enterprises into creating um, a lot of harmful practices and and showing up in very harmful ways um, in the ecosystem. So um, I think what I'm finding a bit challenging is just how so much of how capital is distributed is just not working to the benefit of a lot of the enterprises, right? So social enterprises that are at the forefront in many ways are at the forefront of tackling some of the big societal and environmental challenges are just not getting resourced in the way that they need to be. And other enterprises that are underpinned by capitalistic practices are are very much centered around profit making and you know lining up the pockets of shareholders. They are getting mon- money thrown at them left, right and center. So I'm curious to hear from you, what has been your experience with um, the the way capital is currently being distributed, whether it's philanthropy, whether it's impact investing, um, or whether, you know, it's even grants, there's, you know, there's similar themes that are occurring across these different spaces, and these different funding instruments that keep kind of keep taking us back to the way previous generations have distributed capital. 
Yes, it, it can be quite. Um, I think this you can feel quite disillusioned when you see the news about um, the co-founder of WeWork and all the harm he's caused, but him being able to raise one third of a billion in such a short time when you know, you and I know so many of the enterprises can't even get 50K to get a life-changing intervention funder, right? So it can just feel what's the world <laughs> um, really valuing and why do we have our priorities so wrong? Um, and I, I do get into some of that uh, from time to time. And I think with the financing challenges that we know about social enterprises, the statistics really say it all. UK, US, globally, um, the amount of VC funding going to women entrepreneurs, you know, I don't need to quote, I've kind of written very extensively on Forbes about them. And I think these statistics are, again, double-edged sword because on one hand, they highlight the problem and hopefully then decision makers will do something about it. But at the same time, I think they are very daunting for entrepreneurs. Uh, if you, you know, you, as a woman of color entrepreneur, we know that our kind of possibility of getting VC funding is like 0.01% or, or whatever. So it can just feel like, how can I break that cycle? And uh, indeed, it's very difficult to break that cycle. Um, in our work at the consultancy, we've tried to work, you know, funded by foundations to get organizations investment ready. So particularly organizations that are led by um groups that have traditionally not been funded, women, uh, disabled people, people of colour, and especially where these characteristics intersect. But doing it deal by deal is just too difficult because what we've found is investors have a lot of biases that um, they can't change or that they're not even aware of. The products out there are just not fitting the needs of these enterprises. Mm -hmm. And there's so many systemic issues um, that only I think systemic initiatives such as the ones that you're involved in like uh, Sebra's can address um, and and I'm hoping to to do more of that now um, with philanthropy I do think there's more recognition so the Black Lives Matter movement I think has really made people aware that there's a huge problem of racism in the philanthropy sector. Um, so what we've found is I've worked with a few uh, foundations in the UK, such as Lloyds Bank Foundation, to start uh, new funds that are focused on racial justice. Um, and there are also foundations that have contracted us to do a DEI review of their uh, decision-making process and their uh, funding process so that they can identify where the challenges are and how can they improve and truly um, you know, create a level playing field for all groups wanting to seek funding. Uh, impact investing, I think, is coming to a similar reckoning. Um, and it's kind of a bit behind, I would say, the philanthropy sector. Uh, but I've been trying to kind of catalyze that conversation. Many years ago, I started the Diversity Forum in the UK for inclusive social investment. Mm -hmm. So uh, that now has... Uh, I think gather almost all social investors in the UK to pledge to, um, you know, at least to commit to this uh, cause of diversity. Um, 
And there are, I think, more kind of innovations coming now. And I've trained investors uh, through the Equality Impact Investing Project, which is focused on getting investors to address the SDG 10, reducing inequality specifically. Um, And in my training, one tool that I found investors are embracing quite well is I'm, I'm training them on the tool that Criterion Institute, which is a think tank on gender lens investing, uh, has created called Power Analysis. So it's just using a power lens to audit your investment process. And back to what you said earlier, a lot of the challenges is that investors and the investees' incentives are not aligned and that the investors' risks they're shifting their own risks to the investees. And so this power analysis just helps investors to recognize where are we unfairly um, and unreasonably putting the onus on our investees and how can we redistribute power in this investment process. So these are some of the things that I'm doing, you know, whether that's convening investors, training them, just for them to be more aware of these systemic issues, because unless that changes, we can't really help deal by deal. You, you know, you can occasionally get a uh, fantastic uh, women of color who smash all ceilings and raise like whatever millions of pounds or dollars, but that would just still be the odd one out. And we really need to shift the system in order for the financing issues to be addressed. Yeah, you just made a very crucial point around how the risk is being shifted towards investees. And we see that play out in different funding instruments, just the way that they're designed, the onus always tends to fall on the borrower or the um, grant recipient or the investee um, and the financier um, tends to not take on um, much responsibility or accountability in, around how how they're distributing that capital. And that's, I think, part of the bigger problem um, and also one of the main reasons why I have uh, such a challenge understanding why debt has become such an integral part of our financing systems and the way we distribute capital, um, especially to um, marginalized communities. It's become the most common form of um, uh, capital distribution um, within those communities, even though it's it's probably the, the worst one that you can actually introduce um, in uh, in that area. So just switching gears a little bit, because you've You've touched on gender lens investing. I'm curious to understand, you know, from the climate change perspective, I know that, you know, women are um, disproportionately affected by climate change in comparison to men. Um, And uh, you noted in your Forbes piece that as women bear the brunt of the burden of climate crisis, about 80% of people displaced by climate change are women investments in climate change adaption is crucial. Can you please speak to why women are um, more likely to be impacted by climate change and whether you're seeing um, investors and uh, capital operators take note of this and make changes to to address this challenge within the space? Yeah, Um, I... I actually started stumbled upon that connection between climate change and gender through the work of Lensational. And as you know, Lensational, we just teach women uh, 
how to um, take photographs and tell stories. And we don't restrict them on the theme, on whatever they want to take pictures of. So we we then just get pictures coming from the women. And I uh, used to be quite hands-on editing the photos and kind of curating those stories to put on websites. Um, and I just remember one day I was looking at photos across a few countries and I see very similar themes. It's focused on water. Uh, specifically. So we had lots of images of uh, women with children uh, fetching water. Um, and so I started asking our program managers, oh, why is that? Like, why aren't there men <laughs> fetching water? And, you know, you can say, we're very fortunate here that we don't have to fetch water. Uh, we just have it on our, um through our taps. So I was really quite ignorant about this issue. And I just asked our program managers um, and they were telling me that, oh, they actually, a lot of our, our uh, students need to walk uh, a few hours to fetch water and with climate change that they're walking longer to fetch water. And so we got into that uh, discussion and I started doing some research and I found that because women and girls are taking up majority of the care work. So they would be, for example, fetching water, household duties. Um, so as climate change uh, uh, kind of worsens and droughts are becoming more and more frequent, they are spending more time fetching water. And actually, there are so many dangers uh, on the way to fetching water, um, especially at nighttime. And so there are um increased instances of them being sexually harassed or even abused on the way to uh, getting the right. water, the opportunity cost of the time, right? So a lot of girls are actually missing out on education because they now need to walk longer to fetch water. It's right. uh, it's actually from these stories that I feel, wow, there's something here. And that at that time, it was around 2016, that people weren't really talking about that intersection between gender and climate change. Um, so then we started... Uh, at Lensational, put more time into curating stories around climate change. And then um, in 2019, we published a photo book around called Our Shared Forest. And the idea of Our Shared Forest is also that in a lot of cultures, actually nature is feminine, you know, Mother Earth. Um, and so we dig deeper into what is our connection with Mother Earth and we just curate a lot of these stories told by women from across the world about climate um, and then bringing these insights, like really these frontline insights into my day-to-day -day work um, at the consultancy is that more and more investors I talk to are more concerned about climate change. But I saw that a lot of the gender angle is actually missing. And actually, to be fair, the human angle is missing. Uh, that people, you know, if you very crudely say ye, S, G, so then they think, okay, ye is this and S is this and ye has nothing to do with the S. Uh, but in, increasingly, I've been trying to get conversations going around just transition. And I'm quite fortunate to work with a few foundations that are focused on climate and supporting them to embed this equity and inclusion lens into their work around climate. And I do think um, there's more recognition now that we we need a gender and equity angle when it comes to addressing the issue of climate change. Um, but then I would say when it comes to mobilizing capital, um, there's still not enough products that are out there that are addressing this intersection of gender and climate finance. There are a lot of people that are convening investors like Gender Smart uh, Investing Summit. They have a working group on climate change. Uh, there's also um, 
this network for blended finance, uh, looking at kind of the role of catalytic capital to activate uh, private and public sector money to go into impact. They have a kind of a seat funding round that's focused on gender and climate change. Uh, but it's still quite early stage. Um, and I am hoping um, with the consultancy, for example, we have just recently become uh, regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, which means we can get into more uh, kind of detailed and uh, structuring uh, of investments type of work. And I actually have my colleague in Ghana who's been doing some really interesting work supporting women miners, uh, so women who are involved in small-scale and artisanal mining. And we know that in climate change, just transition, you know, how do you transition to this green net zero through a just manner? That's really important. But also responsible mining, you know, you do need, those minerals to fuel the electrical kind of revolution that people are raving about, the electric cars and our iPhones, etc. So um, she's been working with um, these women um, in order for them to be, be more responsible in their mining practices, but also to uh, help those women scale their businesses, often because... Um, like most industries, it's very male and hierarchical that these women often don't get as good a deal when they tr uh, sell on them the, their minerals to traders. So they're kind of my colleagues building or supporting these women to come together to form cooperatives. So I think there are some emerging models like what I mentioned that my colleague is exploring where investors could really come in to support those uh, to scale up. Um, so I think, I do think there's uh, quite a lot of interest here. And, you know, also kudos, I would say, to the UK that still brought a lot of those conversations around equity and justice in COP26. And I think this year in Egypt, those conversations will be even more prevalent. But, you know, the jury is still out how much of that rhetoric will translate into action that will uh, kind of go into the women at the forefront uh, experiencing the worst of climate change. Thank you so much for highlighting um, some of the different ways that women are impacted more by climate change and um, some of the work that you're doing with the consultancy to address this. I think mobilizing capital and introducing new funding instruments to address this need is is what, what we're going to be needing moving forward um, and thinking innovatively to keep a lot of these factors in mind and how we design these instruments will, will be quite crucial. I, I just wanted to also just touch on one of the points you raised earlier because there's... Um, Obviously, there's issues around gender inequality and how capital is being distributed. But then there's also um, a, a very large issue around racism that exists. Welcome commissioned the Social Investment Consultancy and the Better Organization to undertake an evaluation of their efforts to become an anti-racist organization. Um, and a lot of organizations are making a lot of big statements around how they want to become anti-racist and how they want to show up as allies in this, um, in, you know, allies of the BLM movement. How common is it to see organizations fail to honor their diversity or anti-racist commitments? And why do you believe that is given that some of these organizations make very public commitments? 
Yeah, so you quoted from the work we've done with Welcome, and I do want to really um, highlight that Welcome has taken a very bold step uh, in publishing that report we wrote uh, in evaluating their anti-racism commitments. Um, and in that report, you know, we highlighted that they have unfortunately failed to honor their commitments, but at least they have. Uh, agreed to being very transparent and very accountable about it. And that is right. very rare. Mm-hmm. And that they are very yeah. honest about it. That's very rare too. Yeah. Um, I think with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, we've seen more in the US, but also in the UK and globally, how companies have taken knee-jerk reactions to it in that they want to be seen as doing something. Uh, whatever that is, they just want to be seen as doing something because they have not done much to date. And that's why you see them making very public commitments because they don't want to be accused for not doing anything. Um, but unfortunately, because a lot of organizations are doing it in a knee-jerk manner, and unfortunately, a lot also with tick box uh, kind of mindset, that, you know, ticking the box in the sense maybe they want their customers, they don't want to alienate people of color who are part of their customers, so they just want to, like, tick the box, look, we're doing something. Um, That they haven't kind of undertaken the really hard and difficult work that's required internally uh, to re-examine what they have done traditionally and to kind of stop doing some of the harmful practices. So I think a lot of organizations just don't, give enough time and um, don't take this seriously enough mm-hmm. on their board and on their leadership. And that's why you see them failing to honor their anti-racist commitment. So it's very, very common. And in a way, I don't fully just blame the people because when you don't have diversity, so a lot of times our clients, including organizations are led by white people who simply don't experience the problem of racism. And indeed, they are benefiting from the problem of racism. So there's no urgency to solve it. And um, I do understand that if you're benefiting from a system, and I am also benefiting from some systems, right, that I don't have a disability, for example, so I wouldn't feel as urgently wanting to change something until I perhaps have close friends who might have that, uh, who might be disabled, that I then understand more the issue. Um, So I think, um, yeah, unfortunately, until we can have more organizations like like Welcome being very open about where they have failed and where they can truly then learn from that, or we have more diversity and we have more people of color who are not co-opted by the system, who want to change things for the for the better. But, you know, anti-racism, like any social change, is extremely difficult to realize. It's undoing, you know, hundreds of years in the case of anti-racism, of um, colonialism, of uh, white supremacy. So it's not easy. You can't just expect that in two years we'll become anti-racist. So it's also being more realistic what yeah having more urgency but also more realistic what it truly takes for these kind of change to happen on that systems level yeah I really love how you frame that um 
I think, yeah, taking accountability and, and how we all benefit from these systems and how we may all have some kind of hidden unconscious bias that we don't know show, shows up in our day-to-day activities. Um, but the first step is to take accountability for, you know, how we may be benefiting from these systems and how we all need to do better and, and learn from our mistakes and maybe even do this in a public way like Welcome um, has done. So yeah, um, very interesting points. Bonnie, I feel like we could talk for hours. <laughs> There's so much to unpack in the work that you're doing and you're involved in. And it's all absolutely incredible that I think so much of us can learn from. Just bringing this conversation to a close, a final question from me. What are your hopes and dreams for the social enterprise sector? And how do you hope this spec? How do you hope this sector will spend the next decade resourcing um, initiatives that are in dire need of capital and, and, and additional support to address some of the challenges that we've discussed in today's conversation? Yeah, that's a very, very big question. And I think, first of all, I would hope that the social enterprise sector would not see itself so much as a sector anymore, that we are looking at how we truly embed social impact and social enterprise thinking across all sectors. I think the social enterprise sector should stop thinking of itself just as a sector because there's a lot this sector could support with other sectors to really mainstream the thinking of social impact and the models of social enterprises. So I think that's one that I would like to see. Um, But of course, we also see that mainstreaming social impact has so far been you know, more dilution or impact washing. So I guess a really quick big question that the sector needs to address is how can we scale while still keeping integrity? How can we achieve both mm-hmm. breadth of impact but depth of impact as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, I hope to see more talent really to come into this sector. Um, I am quite hopeful on that front because I feel... Um, the, for example, the interns at our consultancy now or at Lensational um, are much younger, of course, that they're still finishing her uh, their degrees, but they already have uh, a lot of thinking around systems change and they see that the ways we've done things traditionally, we can't continue as business as usual, that I see a lot more um, enthusiasm and even kind of more um, pushing uh, the sector to do more uh, from those talents. So I, I hope the more talent we can have in this sector mm-hmm. than the, and, you know, uh, very crucially from a diverse range of backgrounds, uh, then we'll be able to address those challenges that we discussed in today's conversation. Um, but, but, you know, in order for the talent to rise, it also requires existing decision makers to uh, shift the power So I'm hoping that we'll see more of shifting power as well in our sector so that people who are most experiencing the issues that we're addressing have the power to make change themselves. Definitely. I hope all of those dreams come true. Um, Something I've been saying for a while is that we need to stop referring to this sector as social enterprise or organizations as social enterprise based because every organization should adopt these values um, within their own um, business models. And and we all should be working towards um, just becoming a lot more um, uh, honest and transparent and um, 
showing up with integrity and and with a focus on justice um and that should be the common theme in how businesses are run so i'm i'm very excited to hear that you know you're doing some of this work through the many in- initiatives that you're involved in and and i'm very hopeful that your work is going to shape the future of this sector and other sectors um and and we will hopefully see this dream come to reality so thank you for all that you're doing bonnie um and thank you for taking time out for today's conversation i have learned so much from you and really excited to see how you continue to grow these initiatives and and do the work that you're doing with the consultancy how can our listeners connect with you and your work well thank you the pleasure is all mine um so listeners can connect uh i think through linkedin is uh, probably the best approach um so it's just yeah bonnie chu uh and yeah probably i would be quite easy to find uh from that search um and otherwise um you know my forbes uh platform uh if they search for bonnie chu forbes they should be able to see my forbes articles um yeah i'm very open to anyone who might have uh, ideas on kind of yeah forbes features etc so yeah just uh keep at it and um yeah like stay connected thank you so much bonnie what a pleasure to have you on re-envision business thank you thank you so much for listening a special thank you to rohan single for editing this episode to ensure you are notified of future conversations on impactful strategies and organizational practices please subscribe or follow re-envision business on your favorite podcasting platform whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or something else. If you enjoyed our episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your community so that others can learn about the incredible work that so many people are stewarding to build a better future for us all. You can connect with us and learn more about our work at www.theupeffect.com. Thanks again for listening.